Titled Questions People Ask, a topical introduction to apologetics. And um, apologetics, like what in the world? You might see the word apologize. Actually, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, we'll talk about you know what is apologetics. And in this in this Bible study, we're going to be kind of taking a topical look at um, first of all, what is apologetics, and then secondly, uh, some of the questions that come up because those two are are pretty much intertwined between what is apologetics and then um, how do you how do you deal with these questions that come up. Um, so our purpose and our format, uh, first of all, to understand and practice Lutheran biblical apologetics. When we say practice, it's like um, hopefully we get a chance to actually talk about some of these things and put some put some words on it, give, give it a shot, give it some practice. And then secondly, to look at the word of God for answers to persistent questions. Um, I know I've, I've mentioned it on our, on our podcast a little bit, and I have a few questions um, kind of in, you know, in my files here that always come up, that regularly come up, and, um, and we'd like to talk about those, talk about those in the light of the Word of God, and um, because there's a lot of comfort there. And I guess the other aspect is that when a question comes up often, that really means that you have an incredible opportunity to speak to biblical truth. And, um, and it's kind of the same idea that when it's darkest, that's when the light shines the brightest. And when there's confusion or people have, you know, keep coming back with the same basic question, well, there's an opportunity to see God's grace uh, a little bit more deeply. All right. Um, so the first question, as we get started, uh, to consider for yourself, do you find it easy to talk about your faith? And why or why not? You find it easy to talk about your faith why or why not and some for some the answer might be well yes it's uh you know i'm a pastor that's what i do i'm supposed to talk about my faith <laughs> right um, for others it might be easy in certain circumstances um, easy at certain times um, sometimes you know there's there's only a handful of opportunities where where people really look to you for how you handle things like if you have a, a, a dear friend or a loved one who passes away um, that's an opportunity where people will look to you and and that's almost a natural talk about your faith kind of kind of moment kind of time because you're talking about your loved one that was redeemed by the blood of jesus your loved one who is now enjoying heaven and there's a lot of certainty there that others might not know um, or they're wondering how is that person getting through um, do you find it easy to talk about your faith? Why or why not? Another, another element that kind of comes into play here is, is how many people that we typically interact with. Um, do we typically interact with people who are, you know, more or less in our same bubble? Um, they kind of live in the same neighborhood or they have, they view life a lot the same way. Um, maybe these people, you know, we, we've known them for a long time. And what kind of happens, what, what often happens um, in churches especially, and in a lot of other organizations, is that over time, the circle of people that knows each other uh, kind of gets smaller and smaller. 
where you know you typically aren't making friends at the same rate in your in your 40s 50s or 60s that you were in your in your teenage years or your early 20s um or or your 30s <laughs> kind of like that that persistent joke um you know what's the most miraculous thing about the life of jesus well he has a, a dozen close friends when he's in his early 30s um <laughs> kind of funny kind of not and do you find it easy to talk about your faith Sometimes it is easy to talk about our faith because we we have a, a long history with the friends who have stayed in our lives. And sometimes it is easy because maybe those friends um, or a number of those friends go to church often um, or go to a church that you're familiar with. Or maybe you've had a number of small conversations over time, um, over, over the decades even, and it makes it fairly easy to, for spiritual matters to come up naturally. Um, do you find it easy to talk about your faith? Why or why not? And some might say, well, I, I don't find it easy because I wake up, I go to work, I come home and I spend some time with the family, I go to sleep and I repeat. Um, so who am I really gonna find that is gonna engage in a spiritual conversation or you know, I'm not gonna be standing in the checkout line at Kroger and start talking about um, the descent into hell with the person standing in line behind me. Um, that doesn't normally come up. Uh, sometimes it does, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. So there's, there's a couple of different ways you can go with that. Do you find it easy to talk about your faith? Um, maybe it's an opportunity question. Maybe it's a confidence question. Maybe it's just, you know, confidence as in, do I feel confident that I know the word of God well enough? Um, I've heard that. Um, maybe it's just, you don't have the opportunity or the, the time doesn't strike you or the, the people, the people aren't there. Um, whatever the case may be, you can think about that for yourself. How about this next one? Um, when someone challenges something that you believe, how do you respond? Or when somebody challenges something the Bible says, how do you respond? And there's a, there's a fine distinction here between something we believe and something the Bible says. And, you know, as a Christian, um, we believe what the Bible says and, and plain and simple. If you want a statement of faith, um, you know, it's 66 books long. But in, in the world around us, in the culture around us, at the same time, there's this kind of division between an external event or an external writing like the Bible and my personal belief. Um, or, you know, sometimes I get this when I'm, when I'm talking with somebody who's like visiting our church or something like that. Oh, I'm a member at, at that Methodist church, but I don't believe what they teach about fill in the blank. Or I've I've attended this Catholic church for a long time, but um, but I don't but I don't believe what they teach about this. And so that question, when somebody challenges something that you believe, how do you respond? Or something that the Bible says, how do you respond? Well, the Bible says this, but I believe, and I I just don't see how God could do this or God could say that. That's often how this kind of question comes up. And, and then you're the one standing there and, um, and it looks like everybody else is nodding their heads in agreement that the Bible is, is backwards and not in step with what we believe today. And they're nodding their heads in agreement. And what do, what do we say? How do you respond? 
and you don't want to you know step on everybody's toes and ruin the party especially if you're just there for you know a party or whatever the case may be back when we used to go to parties um but <laughs> but at the same time we want to be able to provide a a gentle but clear witness to what the bible says and to the truth of that bible as well as the fact that God says these things for our good and to be a blessing for us. And that, that's kind of another distinction, that God says these things for our good um, and also to be a blessing for us. That, you know, if you, you were growing up and your mom said, eat your broccoli and your Brussels sprouts, it's good for you. Well, um, you don't see the blessing in that, at least not right away, especially if you didn't like them. <laughs> um, but when somebody challenges something that you believe, how do you respond? kind of get the get the wheels rolling a little bit here so tonight when we're talking about apologetics talking about um, making a defense for the christian faith um, in that word apologetics you see even the word apologize um, it's from a from a greek word that means to make a defense plain and simple um, and maybe that that comes up um, if you're apologizing for something, I'm sorry, I, uh, I wasn't watching where I was driving my cart down this aisle at Kroger and I knocked half a dozen cans down onto the floor. I'm sorry. Um, but when we apologize like that, you notice there's also a bit of a defense that we're making there. Um, I was distracted. That's the reason why. That's my defense. And it's not, it's not good. It's not logical, but that is my defense. Um, or, you know, I was, I was driving and I was looking at my phone at the same time. It, uh, it's not right, but that's, that's my defense. Um, apologetics is more than, you know, when we talk about apologizing, we, we in, in our English terminology, we usually use like making an excuse for something. Um, but apologetics is more than that. Um, apologetics, when we talk in a, in a Christian context, we're talking about making a defense for the Christian faith. And that immediately opens the door to a number of wrong interpretations. Um, name two ways that Christians might try, two wrong ways that Christians might try to defend their beliefs. And um, if we say that apologetics is making a defense for the Christian faith, what are two wrong ways that Christians might try to defend their beliefs? Well, I think I have a few on the next page. You could probably think of a few yourself. Um, and maybe you've had the experience you've been either on the, maybe you've been on the receiving end. Um, some Christian just kind of shook their head and said, well, everybody knows that. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Um, or you're just standing in line to get a coffee. And then somebody, somebody starts in and oh my goodness. Um, it, if, if it devolves into argument, um, that might be something that Christians have gotten caught up in, where all of a sudden you're, you're arguing politics instead of discussing the word of God. Um, I've got a few on this next, on this next slide and um, some wrong ways that Christians have responded. This list could be endless. Um, the Bible said it, and you'd be foolish to question that. Um, and that's, that's true, but at the same time, it doesn't, doesn't treat their questions seriously. And with, and with respect. Um, if your, your child comes to you with a question and they're very serious about it, 
you know that this is a question that they've thought about or that they put some time into and you don't just dismiss it and say oh yeah the answer is x the answer is y um you listen to them and even if it's even if it's you know juvenile and um and you know appropriate for their age level you know it's meaning it's a simple question at least for you as an adult to answer at the same time um, you don't just dismiss them because that is the broader the broader thing here is that it communicates something that when we talk about making a defense for the christian faith we're talking about um, communication how about the next one you've just got to have faith uh, the equivalent of christians throwing up their hands and saying well i don't know um, but you just got to believe you just got to believe well, our, our faith isn't in faith. <laughs> our faith is in the written word of God. And to say you just got to believe is, gives the impression that the Christian faith is irrational and illogical and only suited for people of a different era. <laughs> if we are, people would be so arrogant as to say that um that in our advanced scientific era you know we i know how to use my brain um and so you just got to have faith it doesn't cut it for me and there's some there's some truth to that we want to deal with a person's question um appropriately and reasonably and and taking it seriously and dismissing it with oh the bible said it on the one hand or you just got to believe on the other hand doesn't take that seriously. Uh, the next one, straw man argument. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorites, I suppose. Or, um, and the, the straw man argument, sometimes it, it pops up in um, like political debates. Uh, that's a fairly, fairly good one. Most cam a lot of campaigns have made a lot of hay with a straw man argument, uh, so to speak, no pun intended. But um, a straw man argument, the, the image is is of like a, a knight or a person, you know, with a, with a sword who's doing some practicing. And rather than practice against an actual opponent, they simply set up a scarecrow and then they skewer that scarecrow and it's so easy. Um, and when we talk about an argument, a straw man argument, what we're saying is that it, one of the wrong ways that Christians might deal with res, uh, responding to questions one of the wrong ways is setting up a straw man argument, which is to say to not actually deal with their question um, with all with all the academic rigor that would be needed, or to to deal with it fully and appropriately, but um, but just to take a little snippet and and deal with that. Um, so, for instance, you know the topic of evolution. If the topic of evolution comes up and somebody who has an advanced degree in biology or paleontology or geology or whatever um, says, Pastor Hagen, I'd like to talk to you about evolution and the age of the earth sometime. And, um, and a straw man argument would be constructing an, you know, constructing an image of their argument so that I could dismiss it and beat it easily. Um, oh, yeah. You mean like when pond scum grew legs and crawled out of the swamp? <laughs> sure, I can talk about that. Um, that's Pastor Hagen constructing a straw man because it's not dealing with the question on actual rigorous academic grounds, not treating that person with respect, um, and at the very least, 
being gentle with with the lifetime that they have invested in that field of study. Uh, similar to that, perhaps, um, these next two kind of go together, I suppose, is majoring in the minors. Majoring in the minors um, would be getting distracted by a question that in the end doesn't really matter. Um, and I hesitate to say it that way, but um, to spend a lot of time on on the question rather than the implications of that question. Majoring in the minors would be like spending three hours talking about evolution rather than, you know, and the origin of the earth or the age of the earth, rather than going on to the implications of that question, because evolution in and of itself um, isn't the real issue. The real issue is where do people come from and to whom are people accountable and who is our savior? And if Jesus attests a creation, um, and I say that creation is impossible and that evolution is the only answer, then, um, then I call Jesus a liar. And what are the implications of that? Majoring in the minors is getting stuck on a question without looking at the greater and wider implications of that question. And that greater and wider implication is always the application on the, the person's heart. Um, the fact that you or I will one day stand before God in judgment. And, and God isn't going to be quizzing you on the age of the earth when you're standing before him in judgment. Um, he's going to be looking at you and seeing whether you're holy or not. Do you live up to the, his standard to enter heaven or do you not? Um, are you clothed in the perfection of Jesus or are you not? That's the major. That's where all of our questions have to lead. Um, that's you know very similar to the topic that I talked about this past Sunday in our in our sermon. Um, that would have been you know the first Sunday in February here. That the apex, the point of it all, the point of Christian theology is the glory of God. And where do we see God's glory most fully displayed? In the word of God, where we see the Son of God crucified for us, for sinners. And that's where we need to go. Um, this next one is similar to majoring in the minors, um, getting distracted by red herrings. And uh, the idea of a red herring is, um, you know, like a stinky preserved fish that uh, you open it and it's like, woof, <laughs> it's kind of smelly. Um, but the, the story is that when a bank robber would rob a bank, then he would, and he would carry a jar of red herrings with him so that if the police came after him with dogs to try to follow his trail, his scent, then he could drop some of these to throw the dogs off the scent. And um, obviously that's probably just a Hollywood, Hollywood fiction, um, but where it comes into discussion like this, is getting distracted by red herrings. When you're honing in on majoring in the majors, you're not getting distracted by the minors, and then somebody keeps throwing all these minor details your way. Oh, but you're just saying that, Pastor Hagen, because, because you're a man. <laughs> but <laughs> you're just saying that because you're a Packer fan. Um, you're just saying that because you have this assumption, and, but what does God really say about, about his Bible? And aren't, don't all religions lead to heaven anyway? And normally these, these questions, these red herrings um, that are, you know, some of them are legitimate questions, but they are 
the sole purpose of that question existing is to throw you off of the actual topic that you want to talk about. And so the easiest way is to say, well, I, I agree with you that the, there are a lot of questions here, but we'll get to those in just a minute. Um, some wrong ways that Christians have responded. These, these bottom two um, more relate to inside of our churches. I'm so disappointed that you would that you would ask such a thing, that you would think such a thing, that you wouldn't be more informed about that topic. I'm disappointed that you would. Um, that's not a very good way because that, that doesn't treat the other person with respect, with love, with patience. Um, but rather it, it simply paints everybody with the same brush and says that, you know, we, we really expect you to it, it breathes this sense of unplugging our brains and that there is no space for people to express their questions and there is no space for people to, to sin. Well, God's law is pretty clear about sin, but at the same time, sin is there to be confessed. So in some ways that Christians have responded, I'm so disappointed that you would. Um, that you would wonder that, that that would even be a question, that that would be a possibility on your mind. Um, that's a very emotion-laden question that could really stop a conversation in its tracks. Some wrong ways that Christians have responded. Uh, the last one is very similar. We don't ask that here, um, whether that's implied or explicit. You know, somebody raises their hand and says, you know, ask their question, whatever it is, and everybody gets really nervous. Oh, we don't, we don't talk about that topic here. Um, or, you know, you can just feel the, the tension in the room. Oh, no, what's pastor going to say? Um, it's kind of the, the hot button topics and each congregation and each area of, of this world has its own hot button topics and conversations that, that kind of imply that you can't have that here you can't discuss that here and that's not a good thing either because when we talk about the christian faith we want to have be able to have confidence and um and understanding and i guess that that kind of there are there are a number of others that could be on this list um some wrong ways that christians have responded just uh summarizing for those listening on the podcast the bible said it you'd be foolish to question that you would be foolish um or you've just got to have faith you just gotta gotta believe or a straw man argument um making a you know construction of their argument that's easy enough for you to talk to so you can shut it down and move on majoring in the minors and getting distracted by red herrings um getting distracted by all the details or all the other questions rather than making sure that you focus on the one main thing um, or the very emotion-filled questions, statements, I'm so disappointed that you would. Ooh. Or we don't ask that here. Um, and sometimes that, that last one, we don't ask that here, even just shows up in, in the way people shift in their, sh in, their, in their seats and maybe shift their gaze left and right and look around and say, oh, getting kind of warm in here, right? Uh, so some unique challenges for today. And again, this list could be nearly endless, um, but there are four major ones that we're going to be looking at as we kind of discuss this topic um, over the next, I don't know, 
four or five, maybe six weeks questions people ask. And this list could be nearly endless, but the first one is what we call privatization. We're not talking about economics here. We're talking about, um, I'll get to that on the next slide. Uh, the second is wiki reality. What Stephen Colbert termed wikiality. <laughs> the third is Gnosticism. The G is silent, so it looks like Gnosticism, um, but it's Gnosticism. And then the fourth is emotion. Four major talent challenges for today. Um, unique, perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, privatization. And this is a quote from James Emery White in his book, Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, talking about people who check the box marked none for religious affiliation on the census. Privatization is the process by which a chasm is created between the public and the private spheres of life and spiritual things are increasingly placed in the private arena. So when it comes to things like business, politics, or even marriage in the home, the personal faith is bracketed off. The process of privatization left unchecked makes the Christian faith a matter of personal preference, personal preference trivialized to the realm of taste or opinion. In your own words, <laughs> what did he just say? Um, basically that we have topics that are open for public discussion and topics that are only for your own private opinion. And there, the, the topics in, in public discussion are topics that there may have been a time in history um, that the public topics were topics that were openly debated in, in calmness and a, a conversant welcoming environment. Um, I don't know that that has ever truly been the case in our country. Um, maybe go back to ancient Greece or Rome or something like that, but maybe that's just ideal, I, I, idealism there. Um, but the idea that of all the things that are in your private life, um, your faith is something you keep to yourself because that's just your opinion. And you can have an opinion about Jesus, the same you can have an opinion about Buddha or Mohammed or the color of the walls in your home um, because it's just this trivial private opinion and it doesn't have any bearing, shouldn't have any bearing on the public life. And it is not part of the conversation in a public setting. <laughs> and so... Um, and and that, that very much fits together with this idea that, that truth is found in personal belief. Um, so another, you know, kind of foundational concept here, I suppose, but privatization, the idea that faith and matters of spiritual reality um, are simply, that's good for you, but keep it to yourself. Next one, wiki reality. Uh, a, also known as wikiality. Um, reality is determined by majority vote. And this term, as far as I can tell, was coined by Stephen Colbert. Um, wikiality, the idea from Wikipedia, you know, the people's encyclopedia, where people from all over the world can make contributions and edits and corrections and update it and that sort of thing. Um, and so in internet, parlance and internet speak, a wiki is something that um, contributors can can update together, can work on together until they arrive at a finished form that um, that everybody agrees on. And this 
wikiality is the idea that reality is determined by majority vote. So if, you know, 51% of people think that this idea is correct or that idea is correct, or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever idea you want, um, then that must be the reality because 51% of people said so. Um, and to that, <laughs> I mean, that, that one is relatively recent because um, there's even that, that quote from Albert Einstein. Um, and, you know, there's some debate. I think, I think this one's an authentic quote, basically where somebody was like, well, Dr. Einstein, did you know that there are over 400 doctors and physicists who have signed a paper disagreeing with you and proving you wrong? And his, his apparent reaction was, if I was wrong, it wouldn't take 400 people to prove it. It would just take one. And that, that kind of deals, or it touches on this idea of the public and the private, that there are matters of private opinion that are your personal opinion, but you keep it to yourself. But matters of public consumption, public opinion, um, those are subject to vote. And those are, if not in, you know, like an actual polling location, they are subject to the popular opinion as, as we see it, <laughs> which is another matter entirely. Um, reality determined by majority vote. That's another challenge. Now, the third challenge that we talked about is Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Um, gnosis. Here's the other Greek word for tonight. Gnosis meaning knowledge. So Gnosticism is this, this old false teaching, or what we call a heresy, uh, this old heresy um, that says, hey, I've got some secret knowledge here. And kind of, there, there's a lot to it. Gnosticism is a little squishy, um, but I guess the best way to summarize it is what we have on the screen or if you're listening to the podcast here goes first of all you, you draw a sharp divide between spiritual and physical so in you and 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 this is i mean there's obviously that element of truth when we talk about um you your soul and your body but your soul and your body are only separated by death and they're reunited in resurrection. So when I talk about how is your soul, how is your heart, um, how, how, how is your mind, where's your mind at these days, and how are you feeling, you know, how are your knees and your joints and your arthritis, those are all different ways of talking to the same person. How's your soul? That's like, you know, might, might use that phrase to talk about a deep-seated emotional state. Um, how's your heart? Like if somebody has been through some trauma or some, you know, heartbreak, even as we call it, where's your mind at these days? Uh, what are you thinking? Um, you've got a lot on your mind and, and what are you thinking? Um, or, you know, how, how's the arthritis? Well, that's really a question of your physical body, but all of those are the same person. Um, where you don't say to yourself, oh, my, my heart is okay, but the rest of me is, is, is not okay. Um, it's exactly like Paul says in, what is that, 1 Corinthians um, 12, where if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts with it, that you are a person, and that person is made up of body and soul who are bound together. And so there is no actual distinction between physical and spiritual. And this makes this makes sense. If that sounds confusing, it's already really simple. Um, that 
you can physically sin. You can punch somebody um, and they, they didn't deserve it. And you did it purely for, you know, malicious reasons. Um, you can punch somebody. You did that with your physical fist, but it was also sinful, <laughs> even though you did it with your physical body. Um, but your, your whole self was involved in that sin. Gnosticism tries to set up this division between spiritual and physical, that you are a spirit who happens to inhabit a body. <laughs> and, um, and, and I mean, where we even kind of see that in the world around us, is the, the question of transgenderism. Well, you know, physically I present this way, but inside the real me feels like, feels like fill in the blank, whatever the case may be. Um, and so if we've got this division between spiritual and physical, the, the next element of that is that the physical is lesser. The physical is even bad or the physical doesn't matter. Um, so it doesn't matter what you do with your body, whether you indulge it through excess um, or you deprive it. It doesn't matter um, whether you whether you toe the line on God's law or whether you don't whatsoever. It doesn't matter because the real you is untouched because the real you is the spiritual. That's what Gnosticism says. And since spiritual is better, and they, they set up, there's this fake division between spiritual and physical, um, and the physical is the lesser and the spiritual is better, then the logical result of that is that my concept of spiritual is the reality. So if I feel like I'm good with God, then that's reality. If I feel like I'm a good person, then that's reality. If I feel like, um, you know, outwardly um, I'm, I'm a, a man in his mid-30s, but inwardly I feel like a pink unicorn, well, that's reality. If I feel like, um, like I'm going to heaven, either despite of or because of what I've done, um, then that is reality. And there ends up being no place for the objective word of God. So that's definitely a challenge. And that one's a little bit more difficult. Um, I'm still working my way through a book. There was a Missouri Synod pastor who actually lives in the Toledo area who wrote like a 300 page book on the topic of Gnosticism in America. And it's <laughs> right now, it's, it's, the, it's the book that I pick up if I'm having a hard time falling asleep. Um, hopefully that'll change here in the next few weeks. And finally, um, emotion specific challenges is emotion. And this is this can take on three different forms. Uh, make a purely emotional plea. Um, just trying to play to somebody's emotions and speak about somebody's emotions without connecting it to the word of God. Um, that's, that, that would be a mistake because then you're teaching people to follow their feelings instead of the facts of scripture. Um, emotion, another, another pitfall here is to be sidetracked by emotion driven issues. Um, you see this, you see this in our national conversation on the topic of abortion. There are, there are many on the pro-life side who, you know, feel very strongly and I am one of them. Um, but I guess one of the frustrations is that the only 
or the major discussion comes from a purely emotion driven discussion. Um, isn't this baby cute? Don't you love babies? Um, rather than uh, an emotional discussion that is balanced out with substantive facts and the implications of that fact. So I guess, you know, it's, it's similar between making a purely emotional plea or being sidetracked by emotional issues. Um, making an emotional plea is like me speaking and being sidetracked by emotional issues is when somebody throws out an emotional red herring. <laughs> There's that word again. Uh, when somebody tries to distract, you know, sidetrack the conversation on the basis of emotion alone. And then thirdly, letting our emotions cloud our thinking. Um, the emotion of, you know, anger or um, maybe shame or guilt or frustration. Sometimes those emotions can be very strong and they'll be strong with, with yourself or, you know, stronger in some people than others and stronger when you're talking with somebody than with talking with other people um, where, you know, some people just know how to push your buttons and, for whatever reason, it just gets your heart rate going. And then all of a sudden you're seeing red. And before you know it, the words were out of your mouth. and You couldn't even catch them out of the air. Um, that's not where you want to be. <laughs> but it's reality. And, um, and if you get into a discussion about deeply held personal beliefs, if you want to phrase it that way, if you want to talk about spiritual matters with somebody, um, that's naturally an emotional topic. Because you as a Christian are investing your life and directing your life after what God says in his word. And the implications of that um, is that there are only two options when the end comes. Whether that end is judgment day or our own personal judgment day when we die, when body and soul separate. And hell is forever. Heaven is forever. And you don't change. <laughs> you don't go back and forth between the two. Um, that's real emotion and we need to understand that. All right. So the unique challenges for today in summary, privatization, making that faith and matters of spiritual, spiritual matters, a purely private matter, wiki reality or wikiality, um, that majority rule defines, um, reality even, and especially in spiritual matters. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the third is Gnosticism, is that division between the spiritual and the physical, and the idea that the physical is lesser, the spiritual is better, and therefore how I feel inwardly um, is a higher reality than anything I demonstrate outwardly. And then fourthly, emotion and the pitfalls of emotion for personal discussion as well as um, the charges that, you know, the words that people might say to us. Uh, which of these is most challenge, challenging to you and why? And which have you encountered most often? Um, for me, most challenging, boy, they're all they're all very difficult. I think um, I think emotion still gets to me. Um, hopefully less so than it used to be, and the only way that I can say that is because of the confidence in the Word of God and and knowing the Word of God. 
um, Gnosticism. That one is is a much larger topic than than all the others, I think, uh, which is why you know large books have been written on the topic. And that idea of Gnosticism really pervades a lot of um, what fills our, our news feeds and the headlines in our country. Um, and so that's that's an ongoing one. That's very challenging. Um, but the cool thing is that that God's word can cut through all of these with objective reality and and each person has a conscience, the natural knowledge of God, which echoes that God's word is true. And so if somebody says, you know, well, that's your private opinion, I could say, well, yeah, it, it certainly is. It's also my public opinion. Um, but the reality, whether <laughs> the reality is that one day you're going to stand before God in judgment. And he's not going to particularly care about your private opinion when your private opinion disagrees with his. Um, he's God and you're not. Uh, wiki-ality, wiki-reality. I think that one, that one might make life a little bit more difficult in a social sense um, or in, you know, dealing with people in, in public <coughs> um, or dealing with, you know, various laws. That's, I think that's going to be a, a bigger issue over the next decade. Um, that majority rule defines reality and defines even morality. That is what is right and wrong. Um, but even there, you know, the conscience that God put in all people is still your ally. Because um, even though if even if that conscience is buried under a lot of objection, a lot of other people who agree, um, at the same time, that conscience is going to be there and you can speak to it. Gnosticism is the big one. Um, emotion we don't we don't dismiss emotion emotion is part of making making a witness and speaking about the faith making a defense for the christian faith and also understanding the emotions that a person brings to the table um, but most of all keeping a little bit tighter rein on our own emotions so that we don't go off the rails and and or get really angry when somebody says something that maybe is offensive or maybe is downright blasphemous. Um, you don't have to keep talking to that person. Um, but at the same time, you don't have the, the right to, to simply get mad about it and say things that you shouldn't have. All right. Unique challenges. Uh, lesson from Jesus. Um, John chapter four. This is going to wrap us up here in just a few minutes. Um, John chapter 4, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, Oops. than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he went, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. I'm just going to adjust there. Verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. He didn't actually have to go through Samaria uh, because there was a perfectly fine highway that went around Samaria. Samaria is that middle section, kind of like a middle, middle state of Palestine. Um, but he had to go through Samaria because he wanted to talk to this woman. So verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman um, said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For uh, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So that's verses 1 through 15. We're looking for privatization, wikiality, and emotion. Um, how Jesus deals with, deals with these things. Um, Gnosticism doesn't really come up here. Maybe a little bit later in the chapter. Um, but what, we're, what we have to see first is, at least in this first section, Jesus is simply managing emotion and and having a nice conversation um and he's even doing so against cultural norms where a man going to speak to a woman was wasn't really wasn't really didn't, didn't commonly happen um it was kind of improper even and secondly verse nine the woman herself says that you're a jew and i'm a samaritan woman how can you ask me for a drink for jews do not associate with samaritans john adds that little explanatory note for for us um and so there's there's a lot of emotion here already and jesus could have um could have given up could have said well I don't have to go through Samaria. <laughs> I could go around Samaria. And, and he could have. Um, but he had to go through Samaria because he needed to talk to this woman. Most of all, this woman needed to talk to him. And so this, this part is just really laying the groundwork. And you notice that even though Jesus knows the truth about her, and it's going to be it's going to be very clear here in the next next few verses. Um, Jesus just asks a question. Uh, will you give me a drink? Verse 7. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't open by saying, hey, I, I saw, you know, saw your name in the paper again with whatever sin was plastered onto the front page this week. Um, aren't, you, aren't, you, <laughs> aren't you a little ashamed of yourself? No. Um, he just treats her like normally. He you know, in a sense, you could say he manages his own emotions so that he doesn't, he's not there in judgment, he's there in grace. Um, and so verse, verse 9, the woman kind of pushes back, how can you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus opens the door, you know, he very quickly goes into, um, opens up to a spiritual conversation, because that's, that's where he wants to be. And, um, and the questions are going to be flowing from that here as things go on, as the conversation progresses. 
verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, and he would have given you living water. So he opens the door and says, well, there's more going on here. Um, and her, her quick dismissal of Jesus, because, well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, um, her dismissal is met with persistence. Um, I'm here to give you living water. And the woman's like, okay, where, where do you get this living water? Are you greater than, than Jacob? And Jesus very quickly gets to the point. Um, Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Verse 14. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And... I mean, what, what we see here is obviously Jesus gets straight into a spiritual discussion with this woman, but he doesn't, he doesn't prejudge her as not worthy of that discussion, either because she's a woman and he's a man, or because she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, or because she is, you know, she's had six husbands and living with somebody who is not her husband. She's a serial divorcee. Um, Jesus doesn't see that really he sees this woman who is hurting this woman who is sinful this woman who needs a savior um, and so the big thing is he's going to be talking soon about uh, privatization that and uh, and wikiality um, reality based on popular vote or that that privatization that idea that you don't talk about spiritual matters in polite company um, and Jesus is going to speak to both of those with objective word of God. And that's, <laughs> yeah, you have to, you have to have regular contact with a good deal of scripture. Um, and that's not being dismissive in a way that dismissive of questions, but rather it's saying that if this is difficult now, um, or if this sounds challenging, and these are some pretty big obstacles for all of us to comprehend, um, stick with the word of God, and it'll become easier. So verse 15, um, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband, which you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And so that opening discussion um, about water and even just you know, shooting the breeze, sitting there by Jacob's well, um, really opens up. And yeah, Jesus has to deal with this idea of privatization, um, that there are matters in my private life that 
that are simply for me to determine my own truth on. And he has to deal with wikiality, this idea that, um, that the Samaritans have all voted and all the Samaritans know that you don't have to go to Jerusalem to, to worship the true God. And he has to deal with emotion because she has this strong emotional response, it seems, in verse, verse 19. Um, she tries to derail him with, with some red herrings and, um, and majoring in the minors. And Jesus stays on point. And so um, I guess emotion is the one that, that comes up or is kind of woven throughout. Um, emotion, when Jesus tells her, go call your husband and come back, that may not have been a simple thing to say. Um, it's like, you know, when your pastor has to speak about, speak very clearly and plainly and directly a uh, portion of God's law. That's not always, usually, well, that's not pleasant. That isn't something that any pastor enjoys, but it is something that your pastor hopefully does and does faithfully because it is for our spiritual good. So there's his own emotions, as well as managing her emotional reaction, rather than getting all worked up in the red herrings of verse 20, um, and or even constructing a straw man argument, um, even earlier, where you know, Jesus could have had all these reactions, but he patiently and calmly sticks with the issue at hand. He doesn't major in the minors, he majors in the one major that he's driving to in verse 26, Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Uh, when we talk about wikiality, wiki reality, verses 20 and through 22, I suppose, um, this idea that all the Samaritans have agreed that we don't have to go down to Jerusalem, um, but that we can just worship here. And so, you know, who are you to say that we are wrong? Um, because this feels right to us. And Jesus talks about that clearly, where he talks about, you know, spiritual matters as not a matter of mere personal opinion, but of knowledge and of understanding. Verse 22, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. And then, of course, Jesus says, he gives us a little bit of insight into the future about worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. So that's just a little bit of a look um, next time. Um, so that would be, oh boy, not the third Tuesday of the month. Um, I have to look at the calendar. Next week we have a council meeting. and uh, But on February 23rd, we'll continue with our first major question that people ask. And uh, we'll look at it in the light of some of these major challenges that apply to us today, you know, understanding the emotion, um, the private versus public spheres of life, uh, wiki reality, the idea that as long as most people agree, then, then that is reality, and Gnosticism, which is kind of that, that lurking poison behind everything in our culture today that says there's this division between physical and spiritual, and the spiritual is the reality. Spiritual is true and better and noble and right. And, um, and far be it from anybody to disagree with what I feel like in my, in my inner being, in my inner self. <laughs> 
So I think that was that was pretty much all I had for tonight. That kind of wraps us up. Um, we'll rewind just a little bit to some of these major obstacles, unique challenges for today. And we will finish up with prayer. We pray. Dear Jesus, uh, thank you for your word, which is clear and uh, which you have given us to be digested and read and understood. Uh, we thank you for the clarity that you have given to us, that, um, that special blessing of your spirit, that we see life as it is, and we don't have to spend our time and spend our lives trying to figure out so many of the, the basics that you have already written into your word. And we thank you for that blessing. And we ask for your continued grace that we would not use your word and use our standing in grace as as a reason for arrogance or as a reason to keep things to ourselves but we ask that you give us a spirit of humility and of willingness to speak and of you know a humility that recognizes um your word is trustworthy at all times and in all ways so we ask you to be with us uh tonight and at every time that we may speak of your grace to your glory all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.